Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. If people think the country is on the wrong track and are upset, it's usually really bad news for the party in power. The Democrats have a very difficult challenge on their hands when it comes to the midterm. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for electing a woman, and I think 2022 could be the year of the woman. I see the demand that we have today as the baseline for the future. It means our economy is roaring back. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Was it something I said? Where'd everybody go? I see the traffic jam to National Airport. Welcome to Getaway Day in the nation's capital. We're letting the air out of the bubble here as lawmakers head home for the holidays with Build Back Better pushing into next year. And a lot of questions remaining about the future of President Biden's economic agenda. Democrats say they're going to pick up where they left off. When they get back in January, Republicans, of course, have different ideas. And we'll talk about the way forward coming up with Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee, former lieutenant governor of Maryland. And later we'll talk with Bloomberg's Jordan Robertson about a fascinating Bloomberg investigation finding Chinese spies use software from Huawei to conduct espionage in Australia, if not elsewhere. The panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano is with us along with Bill McGinley of the Vogel Group. It's the fastest hour in politics. What an evolution we've seen this past week here in Washington. Rewind to a week ago today, last Friday's inflation data, the CBO score. Remember on the reconciliation plan, the one Lindsey Graham asked for? That was all followed early this week by the meeting of the Joes and the meeting of the Federal Reserve. All slowly chipping away at chances that this bill could see the light of day or even get a vote this year. Just listen to the evolution on the White House briefing room. This is Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Tuesday. Leader Schumer said the work is not yet finished, but we're working hard to put the Senate in a position to get the legislation across the finish line before Christmas. Uh, And we've seen uh, we trust his leadership uh, and his efforts to get this done. Senator Manchin said we're just talking about different iterations. That's all. We're engaged. Remember that? We're engaged. Different iterations. Fast forward to today, Secretary Saki on Air Force One. The president is also someone who has been through many legislative battles, many legislative fights, many that have had ups and downs, but ultimately resulted in victory. Look at the Affordable Care Act as an example from several years ago. It says they're not giving up. And with regard to the child tax credit, which we've been talking about every day this week, Saki says, remember the last checks went out Wednesday. Saki says there is still time to save it. If we get it done in January, we've talked to uh, Treasury officials and others about doing uh, double payments in February as an option. Is everybody on an airplane but me? But I ask again, what will be different in January? I wonder if Michael Steele has thoughts on that. I bet he does. And he's with us right now, the former chair of the Republican National Committee. At one time, my lieutenant governor in the great state of Maryland, Mr. Steele, I want you to know I have a dozen large waiting for me after this program. It's 60 degrees outside in Washington. We're eating crabs like it's spring outside. 
Baby, I can, can I join you? Can I yes. join you for some crabs, baby? Come I'm, on. I'm counting on it. I, this is great. I'm glad you're with us. Thank you. And, and I want to start here. Is this a story, Michael Steele, of overreach on the part of the Democrats who already passed the American Rescue Plan and infrastructure this year? Or is this a story about Democratic discord thanks to a guy named Joe Manchin? It's about both. It's about both. But it starts with overreach. It starts with not reading the room. Uh, and the room is this vast uh, space we call America. And the people in the room, Americans, made it very clear what they liked and what they didn't like, what they wanted and what they didn't want. want. And they were very clear about uh, the infrastructure pr- uh, plan, the roads, the bridges, uh, putting construction workers back in the game and, and creating jobs in markets that are still slowly recovering uh, from um, from COVID, those jobs would then feed other jobs, right? You know, yeah. because that's how the the economy works. Um, and then there's this idea within the Democratic Party. Well, gee, let's not stop there. Let's pile on all of these the, the social safety net issues uh, that we know are going to be important to people and sell that. Well, yeah, they are important to people. But not as important when you start talking about inflation and the impact on 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 family, household, and mm-hmm. income. Uh, and, and so it was not understanding exactly where we were. And Joe Manchin, of course, being Joe Manchin, hmm. um, you know, said, "No, we're not. We're not going to build back better now. Um, let's just try to get this little piece out the door. Um, sell that to the American people. Set up the na- the the narrative." in 2022 for the rest of the Biden agenda. But um, here we are going into Christmas and, you know, checks end uh, this week uh, for some for some folks. And now they're talking about, well, maybe we can double up in January. Okay, go try to sell that to folks over the next few weeks while they're waiting (laughs) for the next check that isn't coming. Right. You know, the, the, the perception versus reality in politics. If we weren't talking about build back better, If Democrats said, hey, check it out a month ago, we got it all done. We got infrastructure done. We got the American Rescue Plan. Guess what, Michael Steele, we even raised the debt ceiling so we don't have to worry about it again until after the midterms. They'd look like geniuses. There'd be a victory parade in Washington. But this is how it's ending instead. It is. And and you just you just laid out the narrative. Look, you you take the win in front of you. You got 19 Republican senators buy into your your hard infrastructure policy, right? A um, mm-hmm. trillion dollars of, of money that Republicans, when they had the White House, the Senate, and the House, couldn't get done. You got it done. Right. So you go sell that. I mean, look, we did what Republicans couldn't do. Donald Trump bragged for four years about infrastructure. Every week was infrastructure week. That's right. Well, it was Joe Biden who brought it to your neighborhood. Now it's a muddled message. It's a defensive message. Because you're on the defense about everything else you tried to get done and couldn't get done. Um, and you let little things, and, and I'm not disparaging our withdrawal from Afghanistan, but you let little things relative to the bigger thing that was concerning to the American people, mm-hmm. like the withdrawal in Afghanistan, upset the narrative, right? Um, now, no one's talking about Afghanistan today, but they're still talking about the fact that they're feeling an economic pinch. Um, and they're not sure exactly when all of this now new infrastructure money is going to hit the street, so to speak. And it's again, you're behind in your narrative, which is a, a place you'd never want to be. And and I would say to Democrats, if you want to know how to do this, look how I messaged 2010. 
look how we talked about Obamacare. Look how I got right. that in front of the American people and kept pushing that. Even though yep. we lost on the vote in the House and the Senate, it passed. But you paid a price for it in November. Now you've got the success, and you'll probably pay a price for it in the negative sense because people don't believe in it. They don't it's, think it's real, and they don't feel it. It's that very scenario you just outlined, though, because I remember where you were with Obamacare in that whole debate over the, the ACA, and so yep. does Joe Biden. And the Democratic Party at large, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck yeah. Schumer, they said, boy, you know what? We get one chance, guys. We got to go big. We got to go early because once you get into the midterm election year, well, you know, think the rules are going to change. Uh, so th- did they go too big, I guess, is the question. They could have broken this up into pieces. There could have been some other yeah. ways to handle this. And now once you walk into January, Michael, it could feel different. It, it, it not could. It will, though. It absolutely will feel different because guess what? Folks will come back to Washington after, what, a month? you know, three weeks yeah. at home in their districts, yeah. hearing from their constituents. Uh, a lot of those concerns you're going to hear played out uh, on the on the floor and in news articles um, the first couple of weeks back. Uh, then you're going to be into February. Uh, primaries start to get uh, into full force and, and shape where, you know, people are going to be filing and, and primaries kick off beginning in, in late April, early May. Um it's just it, you just put yourself in a political, you know, box um, in which there's a lot of crossfire and you're getting hit by every bullet coming into the box. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and it, it's just one of those things that I just don't understand how they couldn't understand the politics here. Get the president to win. Let him go out and sell it to the country. Yep. You as members then go back and say, look what we did. Voters begin to feel a little bit better. They calm down. Yeah, inflation is going to be a blip. It's going to be this. And you and I know, you know, how that works out in the markets. It's, you know, some businesses bake it in. Others don't. Right. But be that as it may, it it will be what it is. Right. You can't control it. It'll be what it is. But you can you can, to a certain extent, manage the messaging around it so it doesn't compound on top of other messages uh, and gives people this sense of, you guys don't have a clue what you're doing, do you? And that's <laughs> where the Biden administration finds itself going into Christmas. Boy, that's a fine line there. Does Joe Manchin want to run for oh, president? very fine line. What was that? Does Joe Manchin want to run for president? You know, I don't think so. I, I've never I've never gotten that vibe from, from uh, Joe Manchin. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, being in the spotlight for a whole year where, you know, you basically have box the president into a corner you may that may come to you when people say hey sure, Joe, you yeah. think about running right but I, I don't have that vibe from i think he genuinely as as a fiscal hawk um notwithstanding the politics of being the only democrat statewide in the state of west virginia um you know elected statewide mm-hmm. uh, i think he genuinely you know believes philosophically what he's saying and what he's trying to do and I don't think there's a greater appreci- enough of appreciation of that inside the Democratic Party. They took 2020 um, and the wins from 2020 uh, as a progressive mandate. It was not because you lost House seats. <laughs> now, if you picked up 20 seats in the House, be a different conversation. And you had a five, six seat margin in the Senate. Yep. Whole different conversation. But you, 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 you know, you lost seats in the House. You lost 12 seats in the House. You barely won the Senate, but for one state, Georgia, um, you don't have a mandate. So you have to read the room and understand exactly what voters are saying to you. 
and what their expectation is. And, and that's the hardest part of politics is trying to understand and meet those expectations, particularly Boy. when you don't listen. I'm totally out of time, Michael Steele, but next year, the midterm election year, Republicans beat the drum on inflation until people vote? They do. Uh, they do. And there are some issues, uh, some, some X factors that Republicans themselves will have to be concerned about. Yep. Uh, and that would be that little building on the Hill called the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. So they, could, they could create some pain for Republicans that, you know, uh, yeah, the economics may be one thing, but the social issues Policies can't have another. a way. Michael Steele, come back and see us in the new year. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Headline on the terminal, Manchin's hardline has Democrats scrapping to save Biden agenda. Stephen Dennis with the byline. Yeah, this is all official now. Since we spoke this time yesterday, there's been a presidential statement. Joe Biden made it official what Bloomberg was reporting all day, that Build Back Better goes into 2022 and... I'm guessing the panel has some feelings about this. Jeannie is with us, Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bill McGinley today, principal at the Vogel Group, former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. I guess that makes sense following our chat with Michael Steele. Jeannie, happy Friday. This is feeling kind of odd here. It's 60 degrees in Washington, as I was discussing with Michael. Planes are taken off to bring lawmakers home for Christmas. Build Back Better is on ice and the whole political structure feels upside down. That's right. Everybody's fleeing town, Joe, except for you. You are there, ready to eat your clams or whatever you're making. Oh, we're um, going crabs tonight. Oh, crabs. Sorry, yes, crabs. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, you know, I, this is certainly not the way the Democrats wanted to end this year. You know, you had the majority leader saying that they were going to get this human infrastructure done by Christmas. And, uh, you know, Democrats frustrated to learn last night from the president that that's not going to happen. They have said they're going to pivot, pivot rather to voting rights. That doesn't look to me like it's going to happen either, as you have Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin unwilling to talk about restructuring the filibuster. So mm -hmm. they are leaving town. And I think, you know, your your argument to or your argument, your question to, to Michael Steele made really good sense. Had they just taken the win with what they had done, which was mm -hmm. actually a lot in a 50-50 Senate, they would be in a much better place. But that said, Republicans are also in a pretty difficult place as well with the divisions in their party, although they look better for the midterm. So it is a strange time in Washington yeah, indeed. Boy, for sure. Bill, uh, I understand that uh, Elon Musk is the person of the year as deemed by Time magazine. Should it have been Joe Manchin? <laughs> oh, he's certainly the most powerful man in Washington. Uh, well, that's clear is that the uh, Democratic legislative uh, Christmas stockings are stuffed with West Virginia coal. <laughs> um, they Very really good. They tried to... They tried to really do an ambitious agenda, not having the majorities in the House or the Senate, a 50-50 Senate. Um, and it was clearly destined to fail. I mean, Joe Manchin's had a written piece of paper from uh, Leader Schumer um, since l this last summer saying that his absolute highest amount was $1.5 trillion That's after right. bipartisan infrastructure dealer deal. And it's a little unclear why they kept going forward. Uh, Joe Manchin is is proven to be a man of his word, and when he said, "This is my ceiling," he is not budge. You're right. And Most so of that memo has actually come true, Bill. We've used that as a roadmap on this broadcast. It's actually predicted the way the whole thing would go. 
Yeah, and it, you know, it's amazing to me that um, a lot of the leaders, especially Leader Schumer, allowed Democrats to go out there, inform their base that they had a deal around $3.5 trillion, knowing in a 50-50 Senate they didn't even have their own party on board, uh-huh. uh, all 50 senators. And so uh, it's a real messaging mess for the Democrats. Um, I think it's going to depress their base. Um, their pivot to voting rights and filibuster reform, um, uh, as, as Jeannie said, you know, Senator Sinema has come out and said, nope, not going to be in favor of, uh, of, of amending the filibuster rule. And so it's just really it's it's really been a remarkable December all the way around. Sure and the has. final point is they just passed the NDAA, which is the defense policy bill yeah. uh, this last week. This is one of the latest dates that we've seen for that bill in a long time. So they pushed a lot of regular business that needs to get done to the sidelines while they tried to pursue this agenda that's ultimately failed for them this year. Well, I'm going to get your both of your reads on this from your own sort of party's perspective. Jeannie, Democrat strategy here going into the new year. There is a motivator, uh, at least for a, a brief period of time. It's called the child tax credit. We've spent several days discussing this, and I know how, how you feel about it in terms of its importance. But is it enough to motivate the party to get together and do something here, even if it means a smaller bill, a smaller price tag, maybe fewer programs in that bill, because I'm not sure what else there is to get people moving, Jeannie. I agree. And I've always thought it would make sense to break this up and do these as standalones. The child tax credit is, um, you know, popular uh, amongst many quarters. And, you know, but I just don't think that you've got the will to do that. And I think we need to look at the progressives in the House who are frustrated now. They feel like they put themselves out on a limb with a promise by the president that he could get to 50. He hasn't been able to do that. And so I'm not sure they're going to be willing to now go and break these things apart. And so I think what we have here is a fundamental misreading on the part of many Democrats of what happened in the election. The election was not as much about a positive embrace of President Biden's agenda. It was really a rejection of President Trump. And so I think we're seeing that with the 50-50 Senate, the pickups that Republicans had in the House in 2020. And we're going to continue to see that as we go into the midterm. Progressives feel burned, Bill McGinley. Republicans feel emboldened. What will be the strategy for the GOP coming into January? Is it more the same? Beat the drum on inflation until the midterms? Yeah, I think the Republicans have a lot of issues um, to run on everything from crime to inflation to education um, to to defense to all of the foreign policy issues that the country is facing. Um, It's really there's a lot of issues for Republicans to uh, to run on. And the one factor that I would add uh, to what Jeannie was talking about for next year that is going to play to the Republican advantage, if you look at the schedule for the House and Senate chambers and when they're actually going to be in session, it's very limited uh, because it's an election year. And, you know, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer are going to want their members who are up for election back in the district trying to win re-election, um, as opposed in Washington taking tough votes that are going to be used in Republican attack ads. Well, so I think a lot there's more. even less that's going to happen next year yeah. uh, than otherwise would have. Jeannie and Bill will stay with us for the hour. Our panel for this Friday coming up, an exclusive Bloomberg investigation finds Chinese spies may have used technology from Huawei in a secret telecom hack fascinating story. We'll talk to Jordan Robertson from Bloomberg about it next. Traffic and weather on the way. This is Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1. To New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Thanks for spending part of your Friday with us on Bloomberg Radio. The first thing I read on the terminal this morning, looking at my phone, a Bloomberg investigation finds a key piece of evidence underpinning the U.S. government's efforts to block Chinese telecom Huawei. This thing reads like a James Bond novel. As Australian intelligence officials informed their American counterparts, they detected a sophisticated intrusion into the country's telecom systems. It began, they said, with a software upgrade from Huawei that was loaded with malicious code. Jordan Robertson shares the byline. He'll be with us in a moment to dig into this. Let's bring in Jordan Robertson, though. Bloomberg's Jordan Robertson joining us from London today to talk about this story that I just mentioned. Chinese spies accused of using Huawei in secret telecom hack. Jordan, welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. Thank you for having me. What specifically did they find in this malware in Australia? Sure. So, you know, what we reported is that the uh, the Australian government detected an attack against its the country's telecommunications systems in 2012. And, and, and what the, the Australian intelligence agencies found initially was lots and lots of telecom traffic uh, exiting Australia and going to places in China that it should not go. Hmm. Uh, investigators followed that path backwards, and it led to Huawei equipment. They followed the path, again, according to our reporting and, and sources we've spoken with. And in following that path further, uh, what they found was that the Huawei equipment had been tampered, uh, that it was normally functioning Huawei equipment uh, prior to a software update that the equipment received. That software update appeared legitimate and, in fact, according to our sources, contained some legitimate functionality. Sure. However, again, according to our sources, it also contained malicious code that did a really a really sophisticated thing. It, it essentially turned on the equivalent of a digital wiretap. It, it, it was malicious code that instructed the machine mm-hmm. to begin recording and re- recording everything that passes through it. So metadata, who's contacting whom, mm-hmm. what systems are talking to what systems, what are the content of those communications, uh, whether email, phone calls, whatever, and copying that data, sending it off to China, and then the really slick part of all of this is uh, the, the code erased itself, according to our sources, this is uh, after incredible. just about two or three days. It had a self-destruct no, mechanism, you say, Jordan. A self-destruct mechanism, right. So that the two key aspects of this attack, as we understand it, is, you know, Huawei has gotten a lot, has been attacked a lot over the last decade, really, but especially the last few years, yeah. as being a potential national security threat. Right to you know, any networks that, that use it. The U.S. has mainly driven this, this campaign. The problem with the campaign has been it's all been the public discussion has been based on kind of theory and, and, and a hypothetical scenario 
where the Chinese government goes to Huawei and forces it to install backdoors in its products. Mm -hmm. The company has always denied that this is the case. What Australia found was the Chinese government doesn't need a backdoor in Huawei's hardware. There is an equivalent of a backdoor, if you will, in the software update mechanism. And and the, the trick about this is telecommunication systems are not like our smartphones. They're not like our laptops. They're really big, expensive, complicated pieces of equipment that handle way more traffic per minute than our phones do all day long, right? Mm-hmm. So so the code for running those systems and the code for maintaining them is also really complex. And typically what will happen is the suppliers for that equipment or of that equipment will then be contracted to maintain the equipment. So you have mm-hmm. Huawei engineers updating or pushing updates to Huawei equipment on customer networks. So what the Australians found, according to our reporting, was that the the, the Chinese intelligence services infiltrated the employee ranks of these Huawei uh, engineers who were responsible for maintaining and updating the systems on this Australian telecommunication network in question and had them install and update uh, that included this malware. That's uh, as opposed to the company conspiring with Beijing itself. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's really important to note, and as we, we stated in the story, you know, our reporting revealed that, you know, what the Australians found was an infiltration or an alleged infiltration of Huawei's employee ranks of these technicians. What, what the evidence showed, according to our sources, was not that the founder of the company was approached by, you know, somebody from the Chinese government yeah, and right. said, hey, we need to attack one of your customers. How do we do it? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, this, th- there was no evidence of that. And, you know, but what there was evidence of, according to our sources, was this intelligence operation to infiltrate those employees and to get them to push code that had been tampered. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, that is one of the hardest attacks to ever conceivably defend against because these telcos were paying Huawei um, for these updates. You know, I mean, it'd be like saying, you know, if Apple pushes an update for iPhones, what do you do? You, you click on it right. because Apple is saying you need to fix this problem. That's right. Uh, here's the code to do it. And so, if that process is corrupted, which according you know according to our sources it was in this case in 2012, uh, that's the, that's the kind of attack that virtually is is un, is unstoppable. Jordan, We're you confirmed uh, the breach, this Australia breach, with almost two dozen you write former national security officials who were briefed on the matter over a period of time. But Huawei and, and China itself, the Chinese government, say this is this is all not true? Yes, yes. We've confirmed information with nearly two dozen former national security officials in both the U.S. and Australia. You know, one of the things that's always unclear to us, uh, you know, in these stories is we know how information flows to people whom it flowed to. Uh, we don't have any information that Huawei was told about this incident. In, in fact, we would imagine that Huawei would not be told. So what Huawei has said is, you know, they declined to comment on specific questions. Huawei said, uh, essentially, it's hard to comment on something they say they know nothing about. Right. They may be telling the truth. What happens a lot in these investigations is, you know, governments investigate. They have very sensitive secret material. They may share it with close allies, as Australia apparently did in this case, but they wouldn't go to uh, a company like Huawei and say, hey, guess what we found? Right. But yeah, the Chinese government says we would never do hacking attacks. I mean, every country does hacking attacks uh, for intelligence purposes, for different reasons. And Huawei, you know, we made very clear in the story that, as you mentioned, 
this was an alleged infiltration of its employee base, which every company has to worry about. Well, our understanding is, you know, Australia's evidence showed that this was a Chinese infiltration of a Chinese company's employee base right. to instigate an attack against a foreign country. Well, I guess the American intelligence then, the CIA, Defense Department, looking pretty smart right now after this report, Jordan. What this story shows is, uh, you know, and, and what sources told us was, you know, essentially the first kind of concrete evidence gathered by a Western intelligence service of China's intelligence services using Huawei as a conduit for espionage. And it was hard to find. According to our sources, this was not something that jumped out at them. They had to work really, really hard to find. Incredible. Great piece of reporting, great bit of journalism. Find it on the terminal and read the rest for yourself. There's a lot more here that we didn't have a chance to get to. Jordan Robertson shares the byline. And Jordan, we appreciate your insights today. Thanks for bringing this to us on Sound On. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sound On brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, ranked top 50 college for undergraduate entrepreneurship studies by the Princeton Review. Learn more at njit.edu. As we reassemble the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano is with us, along with Bill McGinley, principal of the Vogel Group, former deputy counsel at the RNC. Jeannie, that story read like a spy novel, as I said earlier, an incredible result and quite a piece of journalism here on the terminal that I do encourage everybody to read. But it does make me think of the foreign policy challenges facing this administration. We've been talking about all domestic issues so far this hour. And of course, we're going to come back in January with Build Back Better. We'll be hearing a lot about the child tax credit, maybe voting rights, and some of the other issues that you pointed out that will be coming from the Supreme Court as well. But I wonder, considering that the window is closing, uh, according to everyone we're talking to on this program, for a lot of these domestic issues, will, will 2022 be defined for the Biden administration by foreign policy? This issue with China, thousands of Russian troops along the Ukrainian border. That's how we start the new year, Jeannie. It is. And and it's fascinating because I was thinking the same thing. First of all, an amazing piece of investigative journalism by Jordan and his colleagues. I mean, just listening to your interview, I was hanging on every word. And it is really something. And, and, you know, we do spend so much time focused on domestic policy, which is critically important. And I think, you know, listening to that piece, it reminds you of what you said. You know, so many issues confronting us are coming from outside the United States. States. You know, this is an administration, a president who I think has rightly said the challenge of the 21st century is democracy versus autocracy. He had the meeting a couple weeks ago, I think it was. They're supposed to come back next year. Mm -hmm. And you think about the fact that the intelligence community in the United States, they were right when they were warning about this, according to this reporting. And here we have evidence of this going back to 2012. And what has happened in the interim, we don't still know. And of course, as you mentioned so many other issues confronting the United States and the rest of the world from Russia, China, and elsewhere. And so it is going to be fascinating to see how much of that plays into what happens next year and what the administration has to confront. You you read a story like this, Bill McGinley, and you think, gosh, okay, so we're boycotting the Olympics, sort of. What more needs to be done in countering China in the new year? Well, it's, it's interesting. Number one, Bloomberg and Jordan really do need to be congratulated on this story. It's an incredible piece of reporting. 
um, that really does pull the curtain back so that the American people can understand the nature, scope, and scale uh, of the threat of this type of surveillance and espionage um, that can happen both in the United States and its allies. Uh, but foreign policy has already started to play a pretty big role in defining this administration and, and what's happening across the globe, starting with Afghanistan. Uh, you know, there's a lot of support to pull out. Um, the, the planning and execution of the pullout did not go well. And there's a lot of folks who think that the, the emerging and, and, and continuing um, aggressive behavior from the Communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party with the uh, uh, sorties through the Taiwanese airspace, mm -hmm. uh, the amassing of the Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Um, but some of the other things that are happening in the Middle East um, are all related because the United States still is the in indispensable nation. And we need to be projecting strength and leadership across the world um, as some of these other countries are beginning to try and assert uh, uh, some sort of dominance, um, not only over trade uh, diplomacy, uh, but are also beginning to rattle their military sabers. And I think it's going to be a, a year where we're all going to have to pay attention to, to what's happening abroad, yeah. uh, because it's not only going to impact us here at home, but I think a lot of our allies are looking for America to step up and continue its leadership role. These are major tests uh, Jeannie, no matter who's in the White House, and, and there's nothing you can do to to predict this stuff. You know, you just have to manage the reality, and that is the reality. Then there's politics, and that's a separate bucket. That's a separate view that we tend to talk about more often on this broadcast. With regard to the midterm elections, though, party's not going to win midterm elections based on the way it handles foreign policy, right? It, it it absolutely won't. I mean, it's seldom that you see foreign policy coming a you know critical issue in voters' minds. At this point, voters are saying that they are two issues they are most worried about. In addition to the pandemic, is inflation, as we talk so much about, and also crime. And those are sort of two key issues on many voters' minds. You seldom see foreign policy playing a role, and yet it is critically important to all of our lives. I mean, you know, Bill just mentioned the Middle East. We haven't spent a lot of time in the U.S. talking about the fact that there are talks about this Iran nuclear agreement going on right now that the U.S. has been, you know, sidelined, you know, from to a certain extent. And you couple that with all of the other issues coming from China, Russia, Taiwan, Afghanistan, as Bill just pointed out, and you've got a recipe for, you know, something combustible potentially in the new year. What's your thought on that, Bill? If you're uh, preparing to run as a Republican in the midterms, are you focused on inflation, maybe COVID, some of the concerns about mandates and so forth? Or are you digging into the way this president is handling threats from China and Russia? If you're a Republican, you're studying the uh, political strategy of the Yunkin campaign and the victory in Virginia, um, and also the close call that the Democrats had in New Jersey on the domestic issues of education, crime. Uh, inflation, the real kitchen table issues that families are dealing with uh, every single day, including the education of their children. But I think if you're running for federal office, you have to keep a close eye on, on what's happening abroad in, in our national security and foreign relations. Because in times like these, where people perceive that there is uh, some sort of you know uh, dissidence within the United States, uh, there could be a misconception that there's some weakness, and some of our adversaries may try to take advantage of that. 
And I think it's something that we really do need to keep an eye on because I think 2020 does have the potential where some of these foreign relations issues could come to a head or we may have to take some sort of significant action to try and make sure uh, uh, that the United States and its interests abroad remain secure. So back to the to-do list here domestically, uh, Jeannie, we know Build Back Better will be addressed immediately. Does anything else come close? Is it voting rights that Democrats lean into? Is it is it maybe restoring some of the climate provisions that didn't end up in this reconciliation bill that may or may not see the light of day? I think they're going to focus a good deal on voting rights as that's a critical issue for the base of the Democratic Party. And as you mentioned, climate change, of course, critical. But whether they can get any of those, you know, past the line in an election year remains to be seen. They are feeling, you know, they are feeling or at least saying that they may be able to move some of this forward. But, you know, I think we all have our doubts. Historically, that has not been the case. I have less than a minute here, uh, Jeannie and Bill. Bill, how will we remember 2021 from a political perspective? Will it be recovering from COVID? Will it be inflation? I think it's going to be inflation, crime, and Afghanistan. I think Mm. are going to be the three dominant stories out of 2021. What do you think, Jeannie? I think inflation. I also think the battle over the pandemic. Yeah. Many thanks to both of you. Great talk. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano, Bill McGinley, also with us today from the Vogel Group, former deputy counsel at the RNC. Thanks, too, to Michael Steele for being with us earlier in the broadcast. What a time we're living in. I'll be off next week, so I wish you a Merry Christmas right now. Take the opportunity. 2021 may technically not be done yet, but here in Washington, the music is over. I thought this would be a good time to kind of sum up my view of the year. I said, let's pass the sugar and then see if they can swallow the spinach. So the spinach was left behind. And as we speak today, they're having a hard time swallowing the spinach. The Senate, as Mark just said, is about to go into holiday recess without achieving President Biden's goal of passing a version of the Build Back Better plan, but with a promise to revisit it in the new year. don't go into specifics. We have a policy of not talking about uh, private conversations, and even Manchin said that himself. Part of that conversation involves finding ways to restore the Senate so it can once again work as it's supposed to, as it has worked for generations before the gridlock of the past decade or so. These conversations are ongoing. So give us a sense of what will be different in January from what we had in December that might get some version of Build Back Better done. I think a little eggnog, a piece of fruitcake, might help everyone uh, when it comes to returning to the table. When the music's over. There are some things that maybe we could find common ground on, but what we're being offered to vote on in the Senate when the music's over. is a complete non-starter. No, I think that uh, this is called the legislative process. When the music's over. I'm still hopeful that it will pass. I'm not going to have a post-mortem on something that hasn't died. Mr. Manchin is opposed to that, as is, uh, um, I think, Senator Sinema is as well. Opposed to all of them? Opposed to all three. Uh, My grandfather used to say, unmanaged debt will make a coward out of the decisions you make. Joe's not a bad guy. He's a friend. And he's always, at the end of the day, come around and voted. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Oh.
I hope I see you next week. But if I don't, Merry everything. Merry Christmas. Happy related Hanukkah. Merry everything. Holding this bill hostage is not going to work and getting my support for recon- reconciliation bill. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.